I think we're pretty close to human extinction. There is a troubling indicator about global warming. Sea ice melting faster than ever before. Experience is hottest year on record. Some fear we're already witnessing worst case scenarios. We need more people to step up and have courage. My name is Jacqueline van den Ende. Jacqueline van den Ende. Jacqueline is super inspiring. Jacqueline van den Ende, the Moody founder and CEO of Carbon Equity, a climate investing platform. Jacqueline. Do you ever find yourself struggling with imposter syndrome? Yes. Really? <laughs> well, who am I? I mean, I'm not a climate scientist and I don't have all the answers. In my 20s, I think I became myself. And that was not easy. I went through a lot of insecurities and finding myself. And I also found out that I was gay. I struggled a lot with. Jacqueline, I find it important to start all my podcasts with the same question, because usually it sets a certain narrative for the rest of the conversation. That question is, are you happy? <laughs> yes, I'm happy. What, in your opinion, is required to live a happy life? To do something that you really want to do. I think that's a great privilege. Uh, in my case, I get to work on something that I really want to do, and I'm living an entrepreneurial dream. And to have enough time to actually live also outside of your work. I think for me, work is really part of my life. But also spending meaningful time with friends, in my case with my wife, having time to breathe, having time to look around, to be present. I think that's true happiness. Does that come from a specific struggle to find that balance? Like, has that been a progress or have you always known that? No, I think it comes from the insight that um, career success, fame and money will not make you happy. I think that's sort of an insight that I've known, but now since working at Carbon Equity with a lot of very high net worth, very successful people, I've seen that that is not sort of the holy grail to aspire for mm. and that true happiness is much more in connection and actually being. I personally struggle with that balance a lot because I'm an absolute workaholic. I cannot keep up with my life at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have wait a little time in my life uh, for my partner, for my friends, for my health, for myself. Um, and so... It's an aspiration right. to create more time because I'm not there yet. You already touched on it a little, but for this podcast, I have a research hypothesis. And that hypothesis is that passion equals purpose. Mm -hmm. What's your thought on that? Passion equals purpose. I intuitively feel you're right. Um, the fact that I work on my purpose, which is putting a dent in climate change, gives me an extra dose of passion and energy because even when at times I feel tired of just, you know, running the treadmill of building a company, I always realize that there's this higher purpose of me doing this. If you turn it around and say passion is purpose, my passion is in building things, in expressing myself, I guess, having an opinion on things, uh, sharing, being authentic and sharing thoughts with other people. I guess that is also where my power lies, um, to affect change. So I guess you're right. In conclusion. <laughs> Done. <laughs> nice. Always nice to hear that. The thesis proved. 
<laughs> then by that, what would you say your passion is? Um, adventuring, living a really rich life, seeing, doing everything that I would like to do. Mm. Growing up as a kid, I really actively felt I wanted to live a thousand lives. And I think I've lived quite a number of those. <laughs> um, building. I think it's the most beautiful thing ever to build a company from scratch that lives beyond you. Surfing. That's really the thing that I absolutely love um, beyond my work. Yeah. That where, where in your opinion does that passion come from? The passion for surfing? No, no. In this case, I would be referring to the building part more. I don't know. I feel it in my fingers. Like, I literally feel it in my body. Mm-hmm that I want to build. As a kid, I was building with clay. I was building houses when I was a kid growing up in Syria with rocks and mud and sticks and stones. And mm-hmm. I feel that as sort of an innate energy. I've worked in as an investor as well. Probably we'll talk about that later. And I felt very frustrated uh, being an investor and sitting on the sideline and not building. So I think there's a deeper drive is I want to and maybe this is ego or wanting to have a legacy, wanting to leave something behind. I think that's one of the beautiful things of building something that it gives tremendous energy to see something materialize from, you know, initial idea to actual thriving company. But also wanting to leave a legacy uh, and ultimately to have freedom. I think as an entrepreneur, I one of my aspirations is ultimately to have to have freedom in my work, to be my own boss, and to have freedom, ultimately financial freedom, not quite there yet, but that would be an aspiration. So freedom drive, wanting to leave a legacy and simply the energy that I intrinsically feel I'm building, right? The things that I think drive that passion. Why do you, or correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like ego originally sounded like a bad thing. Yeah. Why, why is that the sort of go-to? Mm, well, because to do something from egocentric purposes or wanting to leave a legacy, I guess is not the most flattering thing, but I think it's also quite a realistic thing. I think it's one of the reasons why we procreate because people want to see in it spitting and in in marriage image of themselves. So I think much of what we do has an egocentric drive. Ultimately, for me, it's not about being a celebrity or being known or having my name on things. Like, I'm really, my first company, The Client Goes On, I don't care if people know that I founded it. But having left something behind is something to do perhaps with mortality, mm-hmm. sort of fear of death, wanting to leave something behind that you yeah. <laughs> planted a seed and not yeah. simply to despair off the face of the earth at some point. Yeah. I think those are egocentric drivers. Yeah. And to make a sort of a little step back in time, I'm curious what how you would describe your 20s. Oh, it's very adventurous. Very. <laughs> I did everything that I wanted to do. I traveled to Kyrgyzstan. I worked for the Kyrgyzstan Fashion Week. I went there by train. I hitchhiked from Riga, from from Faro in Portugal to Riga. I hitchhiked to Switzerland in the middle of the winter. One night slept on a park bench whilst we were hitchhiking. I lived in Norway, in Kyrgyzstan. I quit my private equity job 
to move to the Philippines to start a company. Private why the, why the yeah. Philippines? I saw that indeed in the like CV outline. What what attracted that? It was random. It was um, so in chronological order. I studied in Utrecht. I at university college. Then I did a master's in Rotterdam. During my master's in Rotterdam, was in touch with strategy consultants. So I attended all of their business courses. At the same time, I was living in Amsterdam, running a very small cinema called The Uitkijk, and where I worked with a lot of film students. And my film student friends asked me on advice how to start their film company. And I sat with them for two hours and sort of solved the problem that they had been trying to solve for many months. And then when I woke up at the door, the idea for my first company fell out of the sky. The Kleine Consultant, which is a nonprofit student-run strategy consulting where nowadays it's 15 years old and hundreds of students across the country support small companies, NGOs, at times even big companies with affordable or even free strategic advice whilst being coached by top consultants and those top consultants get a pool of, uh, of super talented students. So it was the sprout for my first company. Mm-hmm. I had wanted to pursue an entrepreneurial career from the start, but was afraid to do so. My parents don't at all come from an entrepreneurial background and have never really encouraged that. So I formally started my career in private equity, Mm -hmm. which was an adventure in itself. I had no idea what private equity was. I got a literal once in a lifetime job offer, decided to accept it, and then became a private equity investor. Learned a lot about investing, but all those years felt I want to be on the other side of the table. I want to be the builder. And so at some point, I started telling people about my entrepreneurial dream. And somebody introduced me to Kun who later founded uh, Bloomon, the flower uh, subscription. And he said, well, I just co-founded Rocket Internet in the Netherlands. Rocket Internet was a German company that was copy-pasting successful business models all around the world. And he said, well, would you want to go on an adventure abroad? And I thought, well, hell yes, I do. Uh, And then he said, what about the Philippines or Vietnam? So Rocket Internet was sort of like this, basically could pick a country and pick a business model and off you went. And so, yeah, I picked the Philippines because you could surf. They spoke English. I think it would be an adventure. Um, So I quit my job and moved to the Philippines at the age of 28 to start an online real estate portal, an online real estate website in in Manila. Was that a difficult decision? I didn't think much about it. Because you mentioned that your parents didn't necessarily support the entrepreneurial. Yeah. Was it at that point, at that age, maybe even, even like part of the consideration? I was so desperate. I felt it in every bone I had that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So when that opportunity presented itself, I was single. I figured, you know, I'm going to go on an adventure. And if if it doesn't work out, I'll be back in a year. So I decided in a split second, really, that I was just going to jump in. I am good at making intuitive decisions. I'm very bad at sort of overseeing the longer term consequences. But maybe in that case, it also sort of protected me from a pretty irrational decision yeah. to do this. Yeah. Right. Then what? why private equity to begin with? Like what, what was the part that interested you there? Nothing. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> you're, back, you're back at that now, right? Yes. Why is it different now? <laughs> We'll get to that. No, but my initial encounter with private equity, I got invited for a job interview at Hall Investments, and I literally didn't know what private equity was. 
Um, but Hall Investments, they hire one or two people a year, uh, and they typically only hire rocket scientists and nuclear physicists and chemists, etc. And so when I interviewed with them upon introduction of this recruitment agency, they said, well, you don't fit the bill, but we'll give you a wild card. So there was this two-day super intense interview process with six interviews, and if you made the first day, you would... You were invited to a hotel stay in a boat, uh, on a boat to make it to the next day of interviews. I didn't even bring my toothbrush. I gave myself zero chances of making through, through okay. that interview round. Yeah. And so somehow I, they, I, I, I did make it through and they offered me a job. So for me, it was such an unexpected thing that I decided to take yeah, the, 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 the adventure as an, as, an, uh, as an investor. So I canceled my interview at McKinsey and, uh, and, and started Hall. And this is where I figured out what private equity really was. Mm -hmm. Because I, I guess the, uh, the, the client consultant was then always the, was sort of your first indication that consulting on a larger scale was probably the road to go. I wanted to be a strategy consultant. Okay. So initially, when I came out of high school, I went to work for the UN. I grew up as a shell kid in Syria and Australia. What is that, sorry? Uh, as, a, as my dad was a shell engineer. Right. So oh, I grew okay. up the first five years of my life in Australia, then four years in Syria. And um, so growing up, I think I wanted to be a diplomat or work with the United Nations. That's why I went to university college. And then in the university college, I realized that Whereas those organizations have a lot of impact, impact goes much faster in business and that it's much easier to move the needle on challenges uh, from, a, from a commercial point of view. So that's why or when I started becoming interested in strategy consulting and started my own in the form of the clinical consultants. And so the move to private equity was unexpected. But what I learned in private equity is how money makes the world go round. And, and that is a foundational insight that I built my current company on and then the i'm just making pre-assumptions here but the need to essentially do good for the world which is yeah. sort of the foundation for one for carbon equity does that stem from your time in syria or uh, was I that pre say so uh so i think i have i grew up with a very rich experience of being able to see uh, a lot of different perspectives growing up. Uh, so I think that has shaped my worldview a little bit. Mm. I think specifically the passion for climate change has emerged from, well, love of nature. I think, first of all, I'm an active snowboarder and surfer and love to be outside. And so I've always had a respect for nature. And it really woke up in 2004 due to Al Gore's uh, movie, The Inconvenient Truth, which I think a lot of us remember. And um, ever since it was a topic, I joined Ben & Jerry's Climate Change College in 2008 with Art von Feller, who's the founder of Van der Boom, for example. So it was so, always sort of like this background awareness of climate change is a problem. Mm. And then in 2019, I read the book, The Sixth Extinction, which was really a wake-up call. This book is about the five major extinction events in the history of the planet, amongst others, the extinction of the dinosaurs, and all of the major extinction events in the history of our planet have uh, been as a result of climate change. Uh, for example, in the case of dinosaurs, a big comet hit the Earth and created so much dust in the atmosphere that we entered an ice age mm -hmm. and lost almost all of biodiversity on the planet. 
And the speed of biodiversity loss and climate change, which in the past has played out over thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, has now been packed into the past 300 years since the industrialization of Europe and the US. And that speed is insanely scary and helped me realize that we're very much, I think we're pretty close to human extinction. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that helped me realize that there was no point in spending my time yeah, it really helped me realize that there's absolutely no point in, in investing my time in anything else than uh, solving climate change. Because you can be tremendously successful, but if there's no livable planet, there's simply no point. Mm -hmm. I smiled because I also spoke to Milan van der Meulen, the founder of Eni Pentanel, now solely, I think. Yeah. And he said the exact same, that the Al Gore documentary inspired him and his brothers at 13 already. Yes. And that they went on to, at 18, start their company and still running it very successfully today. So, yes, um, interesting to see how this documentary also keeps coming back. Yes. Um, yeah, that realization of like how we're losing. I mean, we lost 70% of biodiversity since 1970. That's just astonishing <laughs> so and, and, and that that you know the buck is going to stop somewhere yeah uh, because humans cannot survive in isolation of our environment then maybe that's a nice segue to carbon equity mm. what is carbon equity carbon equity is a climate venture capital and private equity fund investing platform basically we allow you to invest in dozens if not hundreds of the world's most innovative climate technology solutions. You can think of electrification of steel, uh, zero carbon cement, super efficient, carbon-free air conditioning, plant-based food, anything under the sun, literally any brick that we need uh, to build a net zero economy is what you invest in through carbon equity. And instead of being an angel investor where you invest directly into companies, you invest alongside the world's best professional climate investors in their funds. Mm -hmm. So technically it's a fund of funds platform where you select either I want to invest in a single fund or I want to invest in all of your funds. I want to diversify across you know, every climate tech startup. And with a single investment, you invest in, in dozens, if not hundreds of companies. Right. With the benefit of investing not in a single innovation, which is very risky, but in the entire industry. So you're really investing in the direction of travel climate, of climate yeah. technology, yeah. you're diversifying your risk because the risk of capital loss investing in a single company is probably way above 90%. But when you invest in a portfolio of, let's say, 100 companies, statistical risk of losing your money is less than 1%. And third, we try to do all of this in a digital way. So the way that people have been investing in the Giro uh, yeah. or in a Trade Republic for... Uh, for a couple of years now, we enable that for venture capital and private equity. So frictionless digital investing in impact venture capital and private equity. Also just for everyone then? Like, could I invest in that or do you need like a good amount of money? <laughs> you need a pretty good amount of money. Uh, at the moment, the minimum is 100,000 euros, which right. is a regulatory minimum. A little bit short. <laughs> and then uh, as soon as we have the European uh, license, which we're in the process of obtaining, we will lower that minimum to 25,000 euros. Last year, we ran a pilot from 10,000 euros. Uh, so we aspire to get lower and lower mm -hmm. to ultimately open up to everyone. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty complex to do so. And that's why we're doing this step by step. I spoke with 
Dr. Domerholt, he's a professor of degrowth. And something that he mentioned throughout our conversation is that the complex thing about trying to beat climate change is that in order to put the systems in place that require the climate change, we need a lot of energy. Yes. And it's this annoying circle of needing energy to build the things that will beat it. Yes. Uh, how have you sort of been dealing with that process? Do you run into this issue as well? or? Well, it's, it's a very relevant topic. For example, think of um, carbon capture and storage, right? Like the amount of energy that we need to capture a tiny bit of carbon is huge. So it's sort of like a, a net negative exercise because the energy, unless it's fully renewable powered, but otherwise this is costing a lot more energy than it's delivering. And so, uh, yes, this is, uh, this is true. Think of nuclear fusion, right? And we just recently had two breakthroughs where for the first time, for a split second, nuclear fusion actually delivered more energy, was net positive over the energy required to power it. Okay. So my take on this is that we should invest in things that ultimately, and also within a foreseeable time scale, can become net positive contributors. And yes, we will need that energy in the short term uh, to really wean ourselves off uh, fossil, the, our current fossil consumption. Mm -hmm. Because my thesis is that people will only really change behavior at scale or change methods of production at scale when we have low carbon or no carbon alternatives, which are at the same cost as current fossil alternatives, mm -hmm. where obviously fossil alternatives will get more expensive because, for example, carbon pricing, which is, I think, a very crucial element. You'll talk about that with Michiel Scholz, I guess, true pricing. I'm a strong believer that we need to price in externalities. And once we price in externalities, then the cost of alternatives will catch up much faster with the cost of current fossil fuels, which are not pricing in externalities. Mm -hmm. Then it sounds like what you're aiming for is um, for the businesses to be the ones that make the change as opposed to the consumers demanding the change. Is it tricky to balance the interests? Because often you hear that money and the good of the planet are, are like, they don't work well together. <laughs> yes, yes. There is friction. Yeah. How have you been experiencing that part? I think we're at a point where we need everything all at once. So I think we need to, my personal thesis is that on one hand, we need capital to invest in zero carbon uh, net positive uh, solutions, because yes, we need alternatives. At the same time, we also probably need to change our economic model because I also, I do believe that our current economic model, which optimizes purely for a GDP growth for profits, which is trying to simplify an incredibly complex world into single metrics, which ignore all of the externalities is very problematic. So. I want to move capital in the short term towards stuff that moves the needle and that can help us decarbonize, whilst at the same time rethinking our economic model, which can be pricing and externalities, mm -hmm. but also quite enamored by the uh, steward ownership type model uh, thinking, where they basically say it's not shareholders, but stakeholders in charge. So they basically 
nominates a couple of stakeholders within the company who vote rather than purely the shareholders. Mm -hmm. And often these companies also put a stick in the sand of what is enough. So for example, OpenAI is a steward owned company where they said, we shall have no more than a 100x return. And a 100x return is obviously huge, 100x return on investment. But that's where they say, well, that's enough. And beyond that, we will donate, I don't know what they're going to do in the case of OpenAI, but in principle, one of the ideas is that you then donate that back or purely invest that back into the company without extracting right. any further profits. Right. So I think we need to rethink the economic model whilst working with the tools that we have and do those things in parallel. Mm -hmm. So I think companies have a role to play. Investors have a role to play. The consumer also obviously has a role to play and politics has a role to play. So we need everyone to do their part, mm -hmm. but I'm relatively skeptical on the willingness of the consumer at scale to change their behavior and their preferences on a tame scale that is fast enough to get to dramatic reductions of carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Bit of a segue question. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find yourself struggling with imposter syndrome in this industry that you're in? Yes. <laughs> really? In why? Or how do you recognize that? Well, who am I? I mean, I... First of all, I'm not a climate scientist uh, and I don't have all the answers. At the same time, I'm pretty vocal on LinkedIn. I try to tackle that by asking questions rather than uh, trying to propagate some truth that I Interesting. don't yeah. have. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy having critical conversations on my LinkedIn with people and sort of trying to learn as well and shape my view. I'm still in the process of shaping my view on what is a sustainable economic model for humanity to survive in balance with nature rather than sort of just completely destroying it as we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and at times you sort of get pushed into this, I'm suddenly a top voice on LinkedIn, but like, who am I? <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes so sense, yeah. I, I try to retain my humility and understand that I primarily don't understand much yet and have a lot to learn and leverage my platform the other way around rather than sharing my knowledge, uh, sharing questions that I struggle with and crowdsourcing answers from uh, people who follow me. That's an interesting approach, like the asking the, the, the questions in, instead, because a huge factor that stops people from my perspective and for a long time did myself as well is thinking, as you mentioned, who am I to talk about this, mm. right? Like, what do I know? Um, so I guess my question was based on if you felt that, which you just said you do, how do you combat something like that? Like what makes you do it anyway, even when feeling that way? I've been very inspired by the book Dare to Lead by from Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Have you read it? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard it a few times now. Yeah, she talks a lot about the power of vulnerability uh, and that when we are vulnerable and we say that we don't know things, uh, that there's great power in that because it is so relatable to people. Um, but she also has this quote in her book, which I'm probably totally misquoting. It's, I think, by Teddy Roosevelt on um, the man in the arena. And it goes something like, basically the, ba the core premise is that it is the man in the arena who's putting himself out there. And it's not all the people who have an opinion around that 
who ultimately deserve the credit. It is the person who is putting themselves out there. And at times that's, I think, the mindset that I, yeah, I sort of get into of like, can I look it up for you? Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's really a, uh, hold on. It's a, it's really a beautiful, beautiful quote where it's worth sharing, I think. It goes as follows, the man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails whilst daring greatly. And that for me is very much the inspiration. I try and if I fail, at least I do so whilst daring greatly. And for me, courage is very important. Courage and leadership. And I think we're seeing too little in a, in a critical time as the time that we currently live in. We need more people to step up and have courage. Mm -hmm. Let's take a CEO of Shell. I want him to have courage vis-a-vis -vis his shareholders and to say, look, this is the path how we're going to build sustainable energy future. That is, you know, <laughs> for a livable planet. Yeah. And this is what I need you to do. Not to just blindly uh, follow return expectations of shareholders, but to have a vision and to be courageous at the risk of being fired, at the risk of lots of people hating you, being a politician, but at least, uh, yeah, daring greatly. Mm -hmm. To make a short segue back to your 20s, mm. obviously the podcast is called The Quarter Life Crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say you had a quarter life crisis? I think not. I maybe had a crisis before that, but in my 20s, I think I became myself. I think the 20s are a really beautiful time of self-discovery and finding yourself and stop you know giving so many fucks about what the rest of the world thinks yeah <laughs> it's, it's a really uh, and that gives so much freedom when you can let go of other people's expectations and just embrace whoever you are that is uh you make it sound like that is quite an easy progress did you experience it that way no process should i say no for me i had a I would say a personally difficult time uh, in my teens. Uh, I came to the Netherlands when I was 12, 11, landed up in a small and very wealthy village, which was a rather homogenous culture where I didn't really come into my own. And I uh, didn't really find my peoples until I was in my 20s, where I really started to sort of embrace the things that I really wanted to do. I also found out in my early 20s that I was gay, uh, something that I think I struggled a lot with. Um, coming from a pretty homogenous culture where there was very little diversity, I didn't quite fit in, but couldn't really put a finger on it and had, I think, also a level of anxiety about what my parents would think of this. Um, and in my 20s, I started to discover myself. I started coming out for it. I started being unapologetic towards friends or other people about who I am. And that was uh, a huge relief. It was just, 
And that was not easy. Uh, but once I found myself, it was the biggest relief. I'm still grateful every single day for having found myself in my 20s. And I was there anything you did to, quote unquote, find yourself? Was there something that sticks with you like, oh, yeah, that's what really helped or? Not necessarily. I think it was at some point just embracing. I fell in love like head over heels with a girl at some point realized that this was not just some sort mm. of, you know, infatuation, but it was <laughs> falling in love. Yeah. And then I had the courage to tell my mom. And I think that was sort of an existential fear of her reject of her rejecting me mm. uh, for being gay. And once her reaction was so much warmer than I had expected. She just said, okay, well, you know, that's if, if you feel that way, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Uh, life might be harder for you, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's something I can, uh, I embrace. And I think at that point there was a lot of pressure fell off me. I think in the 20s, I started to have the courage to do the things I really w had wanted to do. I had wanted to surf uh, for ages and I finally just decided to become a member of a student association with tons of surfers and started finally doing it. Mm. I want to live abroad and study abroad. I, I did it. I want to start a company and I did it. So I think I found the courage to live the dreams that I had, you know, had had had, had for a long time and, and I finally really did it. It sounds as an outsider, and please correct me if I'm wrong, as if that fear of almost embracing yourself, mm. eventually stepping over that, mm. after that, nothing felt quite as scary as that first fear. Am I right in summarizing that? I think you're that? totally right. I think you're absolutely right. Because that was such an existential fear and such an existential sort of deep unhappiness of not being yourself or hiding for mm. something in mm -hmm. yourself. When I found that, I think that unleashed a lot of courage in me to do anything. It's interesting because it plays into my quarter life crisis narrative that sometimes you need that yes. rock bottom in order for you to go back up. Yes. So even though this is definitely a different type of crisis as mine is usually more career orientated. Yeah. It, it relates in that sense, I feel like. Yes. I definitely hit rock bottom and then really was able to emerge a much stronger person and a much more beautiful version of myself. That's where I think I found my authenticity. And I think there is a lot of power in authenticity. As not only a woman in private equity, but on top, a lesbian woman in private equity, do you experience any hindrance? or difficulty in that sense working at this top level and in what's in in what way do you experience that almost not i almost would say not. Okay. especially the lgbtqi part of it has never been an issue i think initially back in my days at the hall people would be a bit surprised like your girlfriend i would just talk about my girlfriend and be like your girlfriend <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's much more sort of like curiosity than that being a thing so i would i can honestly say that has never been a thing also okay. not in the philippines which is a super catholic country also because i'm very unapologetic about it i don't make it a thing which helps 
Um, Me being a woman, uh, yes, occasionally, but far instances are far and few between. I think at Carmen Acti, I have been less than a handful of instances where I felt taken potentially less serious because I was a woman. Right. Uh, And often that's sort of like the old school sort of men in finance who then sort of associate what we're doing with, oh, that's sympathetic. Mm. <laughs> the lovely condescending tone. It's the, it's yes. the best. Yeah. Yes, what a great initiative you have here. And then, you know, invest 100K. Whereas yeah. you know, other people investing 10 million. Like, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's As not if you're a, taking care of a puppy for the first time or something. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But uh, far and few between. Right. Yeah. As... Um, as, as I already explained a little bit about the court life crisis, for me, what was a huge deal was being finished with what was essentially the traditional path, being done with school, next study, bachelor done, cool, little bit of work experience, ah, master done. And all of a sudden it was up to me, right? All of a sudden I had to make the decisions. And the, the issue was that it was almost decision fatigue because I had too many options, which is a luxury, I'll admit but stressful nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for people who are in a similar situation when it comes to choosing paths mm-hmm. on how they can choose their path? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, because aside from having a lot of options, I think there is also a lot of sort of peer pressure. At least at university college, I remember all of us being done with our bachelor and there was just so much pressure of people like, oh, I'm going to Oxford, I'm going to go to Cambridge. And then like you feel you kind of, or I've been accepted to this private equity firm or I'm going to work in London. And everybody's seems everybody's very much in achievement mode, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it can make you feel very insecure of like, first of all can I do equally well Uh, there's a lot of competition that factors in there and then there's a lot of choice uh, hopefully which is generally a really good thing Uh, so the first step there is to embrace the fact that you have much choice (laughs) secondly I strongly believe that we find uh, the greatest happiness and fulfillment in doing things on a daily basis that give us energy and I think we talk too much about positions and the status of positions and potentially even compensation and too little about what do you do on a daily basis and does it give you energy and so one example there yeah so at Hall part of my job was really building very extensive spreadsheet models and valuation models and sort of reconciliating financial statements of portfolio companies That was something that didn't give me a ton of energy. But what gave me a lot of energy was talking to the management of companies. I'd go literally to the management of, you know, companies listed on stock exchange and have, you know, one-to-one conversation about buying their company at the age of 25, which was really fascinating. Um, And I think the, so what you need to do is to figure out what gives you energy. If you reflect on your studies, your extracurricular activities, what were the moments that you felt most energized? Mm. Were you doing research? Were you doing analysis? Were you working in teams? Were you sort of brainstorming things? What gave you energy? And then secondly, what is the core activity of a job? So it's not about being a strategy consultant, but what does a strategy consultant do on a daily basis? And is that the thing that gives you energy? Because they see a lot of kids being caught up in wanting to achieve a certain position. My chief of staff is a super talented, brilliant guy, but he came in as an analyst. And what I saw was that 
he could do the job as an analyst, but he was never going to thrive in it. He was never going to be the best version of himself in an analyst job. So I offered him a role as a founder associate where he's basically co-building the company with me. He's doing sales, he's doing hustle, he's doing strategy, he's doing hiring, he's thinking along about sort of long-term vision of this company with me. And initially he was concerned about taking that role because he felt he needed to start as an analyst as many of his peers were doing. Right. And I think his parents potentially were also a little bit apprehensive about what is a founder's ocean, rightfully so. But once he took that role, he really thrived. And he is, he, he is, yeah, he's an incredibly valuable person in our team and really thrived as a, as a future entrepreneur and, and CEO. Yeah. And now as chief of staff, really. It's also a skill to be able to see that though. Yeah. Like how, what, do you know what the things were where you're like, no, you can do better. I just look at what, you know, where I, as a, as a CEO or somebody who hires people, look at what are the things that I see give you energy. Even in the interview, you can see the things that, you know, where people sort of eyes light up and what are the things where their body sort of closes down because it's sucking energy out of you. So I saw that he was just so ingenious and a fast thinker and that he had an opinion on everything. And I thought... I'm pretty good at sort of spotting this talent. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I'm also quite uh, open and giving people a chance and seeing if it works. I have a recurring segment on my show. It's the jar. <laughs> this is a marshmallow test. <laughs> uh, in which I collected community questions and I put them all in a jar. So I'd ask you to take one, read it out, and then give your thoughts on it. I'm excited. All right. Um, I slowly really need to start to buy a new jar. <laughs> Things are works. Uh, from Rose. Ooh, what's your favorite food memory? Mm. Mm. I have to say I'm not a tremendously big foodie. My wife is a big, big foodie. When she met me, I was living off crackers and water <laughs> in my fridge. <laughs> There weren't even teacups in my home. And now I basically live in a Michelin star household. Um, so my favorite food memory would be there is my best kept secret in Amsterdam. It's called uh, Café Bakery, the Bakery Niemeyer. It's in the middle of the center amidst like Argentinian steakhouses and horrible tourist shops. And uh, there's this bakery where they have the best possible scones and I can highly recommend it. One of my top food memories. Why, uh, what makes it so memorable? It's home. It feels like, uh, it feels like this sort of really local insider place where we go every Saturday, really a moment to unwind and feel home. Then we've arrived at the last question, and that question is, what does the future hold for Jacqueline? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think I want to make carbon equity a success. Uh, our near-term goal is to get to a billion in uh, capital invested in climate technology. You're currently at? 150 million. Uh, so I'm sure we will get there within the coming years, uh, but there's still a lot of lift uh, to get there. I want to spend the next 30 years working on climate solutions, ideally three times 10 years building companies. But I also do foresee a future at some point where I live with my very best friends and, and my wife in a beach house somewhere in the Philippines. And I spend my days making surfboards and surfing. And I think that's where... It sounds peaceful. 
Yes, I think I'm not building companies for my pleasure in that sense. I feel I can contribute. I feel the need and also a bit of the moral obligation to contribute. And obviously I enjoy building companies, but I also realize that, you know, real happiness ultimately is not in the success of these companies mm. or realizing potential exits. It might be in fulfillment and really moving the needle on climate change and having a, a, a true contribution there. But ultimately, it's also just in, in living life. And I want to do more of that uh, in the next decade. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're extremely busy, so I really appreciate it. And it was an amazing talk. And I look forward to seeing what's next. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>